So have you ever had an unexpected visitor? Number of years ago, my daughters were playing in the Rogue Memorial Cup on Memorial Weekend in Medford. They were playing soccer. And that day had been a little bit tough for them, so we were driving back from Medford on Interstate 5 to Grants Pass, and I was doing the dad thing with them, right, giving them instruction, coaching them on the way home. And I said to them, really hot day, kind of miserable. They didn't like the game. There was stuff, players, refs, whatever. And I said, girls, two things. Number one, if you love to play soccer, then play soccer. Don't let anyone discourage you. Don't let a coach discourage you. Other players discourage you. Refs discourage you. Play soccer. If you love soccer, play soccer. Don't worry about all this stuff. Just play your game. And then the second thing I said was this. It's not about Saturday, because they'd been playing on Saturday. It's about what you did on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday. As you practice, so will you play. So practice hard and don't worry. Saturday will take care of itself if you're taking care of Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday, right? So they're like, well, as I'm driving, I see this guy hitchhiking on the side of Interstate 5 and he is just this massive man, like black trench coat, probably 90 degrees out and he's got his thumb out and he's just kind of just going along the side of Interstate 5, like walking pretty fast and I just was, Okay, so I started to slow and pull over, and my wife was like, what are you doing? I said, I'm going to pick him up. It's hot out. I don't want him to be out here. She's like, okay. So, and I've got five kids in the car with me right now in a Suburban. So I pull over, and uh, he hops in, and he, I'm looking in the rearview mirror. He reminds me of Lurch. He's like 6'6", 250, 260. He is a giant of a man. I'm like, Oh no, right? So he starts telling us the story. You know, what's your name? His name is Daryl. I said, Daryl, what's going on? Why are you out hitchhiking? Well, you know, this, this girl, of course there's a girl, stole all my money and I need to get back to Roseburg and he's got all this stuff going on. I'm like, okay. And Elijah, who's like, man, four or five years old, is like, Daryl, I have a shotgun. I'm like, hey, that's pretty good, man. Start out there. That's pretty smart. Like right off the bat. <laughs> Okay, so, okay. Um, And then he kind of looks over and notices my two daughters are in soccer outfits. So he's like, you guys play soccer? And my daughter's like, yeah, we just left a tournament over in Medford. He's like, I played soccer. And I'm thinking, dude, you're too big for soccer. Soccer players aren't giants like you are. Like, really? I don't know about this. Well, just let him keep talking. He's like, yeah, I actually got a scholarship to college. I played college ball. I'm like, what? I said, well, where did you get a scholarship to? He said, the University of Oregon. I said, well, that explains everything now. (laughs) Yep, that's why you're in such problems. And I said, what position did you play? He said, I was the goalie. Okay, makes sense. Because goalies are the big, big wingspan, tall and everything. And this is what he said. Hey, girls, let me tell you two things. Number one, If you want to play soccer, play soccer. Don't let anything distract you. Don't let the game, don't let refs, don't let other players. And I'm like, Daryl, okay. Number two, 
you'll play just like you practice. It's about Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday. And I'm like, Daryl, yeah, bro. I'm taking you to Roseburg now, man. Keep talking. And my daughters are like, is there a hidden camera? Are we being punked right now? Because how in the world did that just happen? Unexpected visitors. We're in Genesis 18. Abraham is going to get a very unexpected visitor, and it's brilliant. Verse one. And Yahweh, if you have a Bible, whenever it is capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that is saying it's the covenant name of God, most likely pronounced Yahweh. And Yahweh appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre. And as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day, he lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the front door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, oh Lord, that's Adonai there. Little L, capital L, little O, little R, little D. I have, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourself under the tree. Will I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves and after that you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three seas of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf tender and good and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate unexpected. It's unexpected for a number of reasons. It says, verse one, in the heat of the day. Back in this time, there was no air conditioning. You did not travel in the heat of the day. You'd get up early, walk until right before noon, stop, have a meal, take a siesta under the shade, and then about four o'clock or so, you'd wake back up, you'd get your stuff together, and you'd walk into the evening. That's how you normally travel. So this is like, what are they doing? And if you've ever hiked, I've done the PCT a little bit, Pacific Crest Trail. I like to get up, if we could, and get on the trail at 6.30 and try to be done at noon, because it can get hot and it's miserable. It just wears you out. So this is a little bit like, what are these guys doing? Abraham doesn't know them. They just appear at the wrong time. And how does Abraham respond to them? He's hospitable. There's a lot of scholars who believe that when the author of Hebrews writes in Hebrews chapter 13, verses two and three, that word to, hey, be hospitable, to entertain strangers, because it might be an angel unaware, a messenger from God. A lot of them believe 
that he's getting that from this story right here from Abraham in Genesis chapter 18. And I love what he does. He runs and he bows before them. Remember how old he is. He's 99 years old. (laughs) I'm 51. I don't run. It hurts. And I certainly don't bow down anymore. Like, you know what? I kind of crouch down and it's painful. He's 99 doing this. He is eagerly going up. He's not saying, ah, man, what a bummer. I got to entertain these people. It's, wow, what an opportunity to be hospitable. Are we that way? Or do we have all these excuses kind of built in why we don't want to have people over to our house? You know, the remodel isn't quite done. It's not perfect over there. You know, the yard, I need to do a little bit more work in the yard. You know, it's a little bit messy right now, so I don't want anybody coming over. We have all these excuses not to be hospitable. I think we can miss out on what God wants in the relationships, in those meals, in what can take place, like we'll see with Abraham over just entertaining a stranger. I love how involved Abraham is. He has at this time, estimates put him at a multi-millionaire. Not just little millions, multi-multi-millionaires. He's got 318 people that work for him. So think about a company with 318 employees. That's a big, gigantic company. And he goes out, he chooses the calf right? He got Sarah, his wife, who's 90. Hey, need some bread. Have you ever needed bread? That's actually work, right? On your hands. She's probably got arthritis and she's 90, right? She needs the bread. Why does he do all this? Because there's actually an amazing reward when you're hospitable. Do you know that? So growing up in my house, my mom had two cookbooks. If you're my age, you can probably guess what they were. Number one, Betty, better, Betty Crocker, right? Number two, the joy of cooking. And for me as a teenager, I thought the joy of cooking, there is no joy in cooking. That should be filed under fiction because I do not believe that at all. But since that time, I've learned just a couple of meals, like a Thai dish and some other things. And what I have found is when you prepare that for people and they eat it and they're like, that was so good. Man, there is great joy in that moment. Like, wow, I was able to take something and prepare it and serve people in this way. And it brought them joy. Abraham knows something. And when you serve, that's the route to joy. So he runs and he bows, he's involved. And then I love it. He goes, hey, I'm going to get you a morsel of bread. Just sit right here. Does he get them a morsel of bread? No, right? He washes their feet, fresh bread, fatted calf, milk and curds, which would have been literally camel kefir. It would have come from a camel and they would have made kefir out of it. If someone is looking for the next diet fad, I'm telling you, camel kefir is going to be it. Like it's going to do everything. It's going to be the miracle snake oil that you'll make billions. Just give me 10% for telling you. Abraham under promises 
and overperforms. Man, that is a great philosophy. To underpromise people and then give them more than they could ever expect. To be more generous, hey, morsel of bread. Nah, I'm gonna kill the fatted calf. I'm gonna give you the best camel kefir I've got. Fresh bread. Love that. Are we known Christians as generous people? Like an Abraham right here. Are we looking for, in the heat of the day, at the wrong time, with the wrong kind of people, are we looking for opportunities to be generous to people? You can change a life by being generous. So many years ago, I had bought my Volkswagen van out of a field in Williams, and it had a stovepipe coming out the side of it. Just classic Volkswagen bus, right? So it needed some work. And this was back when the Daily Courier used, I don't know if they still run them, but they had classifieds. And in the classifieds, there was this ad for bodywork and paint. So I called the guy up. He lives in Selma, 65 years old, kind of retired guy. So I'm like, hey, you know, because I got a quote for like 12 grand and he gave me a quote for three grand. I'm like, great, you're hired, right? So I take my van out to him, my bus out to him. It's out in Selma and we get there and I'm unloading it. And his wife, he's 65, his wife is 62, 63. And she is in this field, this big field with this three feet tall grass. And she's got this 20 inch wide push mower that she's mowing this field. Like literally, just dust and dirt going, you know how it is, just miserable. And she's out there doing that. And I look at this guy and I said, how in the world did you get your wife to do that? Please tell me the secret. Sensei, teach me. I want to know, <laughs> right? So go home. Not even a month later, my father-in-law gives me an almost brand new 24 horsepower riding lawnmower that had, it had one problem with it. One of the spark plugs had stripped out. It had like five hours on it or something. So it needed a little Healy coil in there. So I got that done, thing ran perfect. Looked brand new, 42 inch, awesome. Now I had two. I don't need two riding lawnmowers. So when I went to pick up my van, I loaded that lawnmower on that trailer and I drove out there. And when I pulled in, the paint guy comes out and goes, hey, 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 listen, I can't take any trades. I need cash. So I pulled out the $3,000 and I said, here's the cash. The lawnmower is for your wife. She's like, what? I said, absolutely. You can now mow this field in style. She just started bawling. The guy was like, in 40 years of doing body work, no one has ever done something like this. Why? This is what I told him. I said, Jesus has been so generous with me. I can't help but share. That's why we do it. Man, there is a reward out of this world when we have the attitude like Abraham. Who are these crazy people walking in the wrong time of day, showing up at the front of my tent? What's going on here? Abraham says, ah, oh, ah, oh, I want to be generous. Over deliver. Now, who are these people? Well, one of them, one of them is God the Son. And if you've ever read really old commentaries, actually from Jewish sources before the New Testament, they would actually say in the Old Testament, they called him the second Yahweh. 
that there's the transcendent Yahweh that's in the heavens on top of Mount Sinai. But they said, what you see in scripture is there's this, this second Yahweh, they called him, that was visible and present and showing up like right here. And the reason why I know it's God the Son is because God the Son takes on humanity in the incarnation and becomes Jesus of Nazareth. And in John chapter eight, Jesus, God the Son in the flesh, is talking with a group of people and they don't like him. And so Jesus begins to say, hey, you guys are behaving like your father, the devil. That doesn't make religious people very happy. And so that starts this discussion like, no, we're not. We are, we are sons of Abraham. And Jesus says, if you were sons of Abraham, you would know who I am. You would know that. And they're like, you're, you're the son of a Samaritan, right? You're, you're an illegitimate child. That's what you are. And Jesus says this. He says, Abraham looked forward to my day. And when he saw it, he was glad. And like, what are you talking about? You're 50 years old. There's no way you met Abraham. And then Jesus answers and says, before Abraham was, I am ego ami, the Greek of Yahweh, the divine name of God. And then they picked up stones to kill him because they knew what he just said. I'm God. And I met Abraham at the Oaks of Mamre, right? Brilliant. It's Jesus. And so what you see in Genesis is this anthropomorphic view of the second Yahweh. He shows up. So the person walking with Adam and Eve in the cool of the garden, God the Son. The person who comes, the Logos that comes in Genesis 3 and talks with Adam and Eve is none other than God the Son. The person that Jacob wrestles with in Genesis 32 all night long when he's worried about Esau, his brother, killing him is God the Son. The prophets tell us that Jacob wrestled with God himself. When Joshua is leading the charge into the promised land and he's worried about what's gonna happen in Joshua chapter five and he's wandering around scouting the land and all of a sudden he meets this stranger in the middle of nowhere and he goes, hey, are you for me or against me? And the answer is neither, but I am in charge of the armies of God. And it says Joshua fell on his face and worshiped that being. Could not be an angels because angels will not take worship. Read the book of Revelation. Don't worship me, worship God alone. Has to be God the Son. And what does God the Son, pre-incarnate Jesus, what does he do with Abraham? Share some meal. What is Jesus always doing? Eating, sharing meals, right? Before the cross, he goes, I greatly desire to have this meal with you, 12 disciples. The Passover. In the book of Revelation, Jesus says, I stand at the door of men's heart and I knock. And anyone who opens the door to me, I will come into him and sup with him. Right? Like that's the only text that talks about Jesus coming into our heart. It's actually, I come and I have a meal with you. Revelation 19 ends 
with what? You and I in Jesus's presence, celebrating the marriage feast, the lamb. What you see is Jesus loves to eat with his people. That's why every Sunday we take communion. It's both a remember of what Jesus has done for us. And it's also an invitation into the future kingdom that is prepared for us when we will eat with Jesus. Brilliant, brilliant, right? So now we get into, I think the whole reason why this chapter exists. Then they said to him, verse nine, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. Yahweh said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself saying, after I'm worn out, <laughs> and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? Yahweh said, said to Abram, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for Yahweh? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. <laughs> what a classic section. It's one of the best little stories in the Bible. Sarah's like tuned in, ear at the flap, like listening in. And when God says, hey, you're gonna have a son, she laughs. I'm worn out and my husband is ancient. <laughs> like, are you kidding me? We're not having kids now, we're too old. And am I to have pleasure now? Right? That's a kind Hebrew way of saying, we're not having sex anymore. He's 99, I'm 90, there's no Viagra, it's just not happening anymore, right? That's what they're saying, it's just, this isn't happening, are you kidding me? And then God just looks at Abraham, Abraham and says, why did your wife laugh? What a tough question. Has your spouse ever embarrassed you? No hands, please. <laughs> right? This is about as bad as it could get. Like, how does Abraham answer that question? I don't know, God. She's crazy. You know her. You created her. I mean, it's really your fault. I don't know why you made her so crazy. I think that when you look at this, Sarah's faith is zero. She's laughing. No way, not gonna happen. I think this whole story is God coming to help her. And so God responds by saying, is anything too hard? That word hard is a terrible translation of the Hebrew word. It's pala. It's the same word that's used in Isaiah 9 verse six, talking about Jesus, that he's gonna be the wonderful pala counselor. Not the hard counselor, the wonderful counselor. It's literally God saying, is anything too wonderful for me? I think what can happen when we turn 90, when we get a little bit older, is we lose that childlike wonder of God. We lose the awe of what he can do. I think that's what God's saying. 
hey, Sarah, nothing's too wonderful for me. Don't discount me. Chapter 18 is God coming to Sarah and saying, I want you to have faith. I wonder if Abraham had even told Sarah about chapter 17, what we studied last week, where God reinstitutes the promise. Hey, this is gonna happen to you and circumcision. I wonder if Abraham had said, you know what? I can't tell Sarah. I can't disappoint her again. It's been 70 years that she's been waiting for a child. It hasn't happened. I'm just, I'm not gonna tell her. I wonder. So God comes and says, Sarah, I want you to believe. Because here's the thing. God doesn't have any grandkids. God doesn't have any grandparents. God only has kids. That you and I can't get our faith through our parents or through our kids or through our spouse. God only has children. That's it. And we have to be a people that make the faith our own. So I had a theology professor that said this, most Christians' faith is based on ask your John. So my faith becomes, well, I believe because John Calvin believed it. I believe because John Edwards believed it. I believe because John Piper believes that. I believe because John MacArthur believes that. I believe because John Corson believes that, right? And that's fine for a while. But at some point, God has to appear to you and speak to you and say, is anything too wonderful for me, Matt? Do you know me? We'll study in Matthew chapter seven on Sunday where Jesus says, there's coming a time when many will come to me and they'll say, Lord, didn't we do these mighty things in your name? Prophesy and cast out demons and heal people. And Jesus will respond, depart from me. I don't know you. Your faith was based on something else. It wasn't based on me knowing you. So I think God is coming to Sarah because God says, I love you, Sarah. I want you to believe in me. I want you to have hope in me. I want you to know that I'm for you, that nothing is too wonderful for me to do for you. Brilliant, amazing, incredible. Then the men set out from there and they looked down towards Sodom and Abraham went out with them to set them on their way. How kind is that, right? 99, he's walking them out, walking them down the driveway, walking them to their car. That's what a stud. And Yahweh said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him for I have chosen him he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of Yahweh by doing righteousness and justice so that Yahweh may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. And Yahweh said, because of the outcry, that word outcry there, it's the same word that's gonna be used in Exodus 21, 22, where widows and orphans are being under the thumb of oppression and destruction. Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, 
I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So God here shares with Abraham what he's going to do in the future. Do you know people that seem to have this pulse on what God's doing? They seem to get revelation when you would like it. They seem to kind of, know, they're just in the flow and you wonder, why? This is a little manual on how to know God, right? This is a manual, I think, on how to be like Abraham. Why does God share with Abraham what he's gonna share with Abraham? Is it because he's rich or because he's powerful or cool or handsome or has the Torah memorized? The Bible didn't exist. Well, it tells us why. Number one, verse 18, because of the covenant. God had made a covenant with him in Genesis chapter 12. God and Abraham had this relationship through God's covenant. In fact, Abraham is the only one called the friend of God in the book of Genesis. He's God's friend. They had a relationship. They had a covenant. Do you know the same thing is true for every believer in Jesus Christ? In John 15, 15, Jesus says, I don't call you servants anymore because servants don't know the will of the master. I call you friends because I'm gonna let you know my will. I'm gonna let you know what I do because friends, friends talk. You and I have the exact same advantage that Abraham did. But number two, here's what God says. I'm gonna tell him because he, verse 19, will command his children and his household after him. Abraham was not a container of what God says. Abraham was a conduit of what God said. He didn't try to keep it to himself. He shared it with Isaac and Ishmael and the 318 men that were around him. He was a conduit. If you want to be in the flow of what God is saying and God is teaching and God is wanting to you to know, share what God shares with you. Start a Bible study. Start it in the workplace. Start it early in the morning. Start it in your neighborhood. Start it at your school. Wherever, just start a Bible study. I mean, I did that for years. I had one at the retirement home. Taught that for years. Pizza, taught that for years. Tea Time Cafe, taught that for years. Above the little oil exchange place that let us use the room, taught it up there. It was, God, I just want to be a conduit. I want to be someone that faithfully takes what you've given to me and then teaches other people what you're doing, and you share it. And then he lived it. Verse 19b, it says this, by doing righteousness and justice. Those are two gigantic words in the Hebrew scriptures. They are sadakah and mizpah. Sadakah means righteous. It means a shalom. It means a well-ordered life. It means flourishing. It means you're in right relationship with God and right relationship with people. Sadaka. Mizpah means justice. It means being inconvenienced by other people. When they show up at your house in the heat of the day and you're wondering, what are you guys doing right now? I'll be inconvenienced for you. It's justice. 
These are the marks of Abraham. We know Abraham becomes righteous, Genesis 15, 6, because he amened God and God counted it to him as Sadaqah. He becomes righteous through faith. And then he takes that righteousness that God had put into his heart and he begins to live it out. Genesis 14, rescuing Lot. Here in Genesis 18, being hospitable to people that had just showed up out of nowhere, being generous with what he has. He's got, he's got Mizpah. Very similar words are used for you and me in the Greek. They're translated now justification and sanctification. The New Testament tells us you and I are justified purely by faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's faith in God and the grace through Jesus Christ that gives us justification, right relationship with God. And then the Bible says we become sanctified. And sanctification is this partnership, like two wheels on a bicycle. God prods us and we respond. And we move forward in our sanctification, growing in godliness, becoming more hospitable, becoming more generous, becoming more like Jesus Christ. The same two are true of us. And here's what's interesting. In chapter 19, when Sodom and Gomorrah gets destroyed, it says this, they were destroyed because they were not Sadaqah and not Mizpah, because they were not righteous or just. Destruction comes upon them, sadly. So it finishes. Abraham hears this news. Sodom and Gomorrah are being destroyed. He remembers, man, my nephew's down there. So this is what he says. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom. But Abraham stood still before Yahweh. Then Abraham drew near and said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous? with the wicked. Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Be far from you. Shall not the judge of the earth do what is just. And Yahweh said, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. I who am but dust and ashes, suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for a lack of five? And he says, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again, he spoke to him and said, suppose 40 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry. And I will speak, suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. And he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry. And I will speak again, but this once, suppose 10 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And Yahweh went his way. When he had finished speaking to Abraham, 
and Abraham returned to his place. What in the world, right? Sounds like we just went to Mexico and we're bartering over the price of a bracelet. Like, what is going on right here? Like, why is this text here? We know God still destroys Sodom and Gomorrah. It's one of these little texts like, why is that in the Bible? It doesn't make sense. Because it's there, but then God still destroys Sodom and Gomorrah. What's the deal? Here's why. Genesis has a purpose in you and my life. It wasn't just written to mud brick baking slaves that were freed from Pharaoh. It was for that, but it has a secondary mission for you and me right now. It's training us to be priests. Abraham is acting like a priest right here. Here's what priests are. Priests represent God to the people and they represent the people to God. And Abraham right here is doing the priestly work of representing people to God. So how did he do it? Well, number one, I love, love verse 22. He stood still and then Abraham drew near. You and I need to draw near to God. James 4.8 says this, if we draw near to God, he will draw near to us. Ezekiel 22 verse 30 says this, that when the destruction of Babylon came, God looked and looked for a man that would stand in the gap for Israel, that would pray, that would do priestly work. But he didn't find one man. There was no one doing priestly work. We're to be a people that continually draw near to God through prayer, through Bible, through fellowship, through his spirit, through obedience, we draw near. Number two, verse 25, he has this conversation with God about God's character. You're just, you're righteous, you're the ruler, right? Abraham knows about God. If you're going to be a priest and represent God to people, you better have some theology. You better have a right understanding of God's character and God's nature, or you will misrepresent God. Abraham knew God, knew his character, knew what God was like, knew that he was just and holy and pure. Love that. Abraham prays for people, not just for Lot, for the entire city, good people and bad people. Abraham has fervent in his prayer, right? Goes back and back and back time and time again because we're to be fervent in our prayer. Elijah is held up as the model of intercessory prayer in the New Testament. And it says seven times he prayed for rain. And finally it came. We just keep going and keep praying. Jesus talks about the persistent widow that gets what she wants, not because the judge wanted to give her it, but because she would not give up and kept asking. But here's the part I like the best. Verse 24 Abraham says this, will you then sweep away the place and not spare it? The word spare there, you could easily translate that, forgive. Why is this little section here? Because there's something so brilliant in it. Abraham is asking for something that is contrary to everything culture and people know. 
He's asking for the righteousness of a few to spare the many sinners. That's unheard of. In Genesis 6, that doesn't happen, right? The righteous is just pulled out of there and then the wicked are just wiped off the face of the earth. Abram's actually asking for a reversal. Can righteousness spare a bunch of sinners? Can that work, God? That's what he's asking for. This is the deep end. It's against everything that we know. It's against nature, right? Uncleanness. Disease spreads, right? So if a person with the flu shows up at your office and there's 20 healthy people and there's one diseased people, do the clean people heal the diseased person? No, what happens? The flu spreads to everybody else because that's just the way things work. Disease, unhealth, uncleanness spreads. That's the way it's always worked. It's the way it's always been. So, um, I don't know if you've ever been around somebody that's really sick. What do you tend to do? You don't want to touch them, right? So one time I've met a person with leprosy and it was in India. And for some reason in India, whenever I was there, cause I'm a pastor, it was like anything out of the normal, they'd be like, go get Pastor Matt. Here's a 10 foot cobra. I, really, I don't want to see it. Hey, go get Pastor Matt. Here's a kid with tuberculosis. I don't want to talk to him. Hey, here's, here's a, Person with leprosy, go get Pastor Matt. I'm like, you know what? I don't be a glory hog. Send Jason folks dad. He can go talk to her, right? So she had like nubs for hands and just like, whoa. And there is a like, uh-oh, like I do not want to catch that because I know something, disease spreads. So throughout the Old Testament, you have this aversion to disease and uncleanliness. And there's all these laws about it. Because God is so holy and so pure, there's laws around who can approach God. They're called the ceremonial cleansing laws. And there are really three things that could not come into God's holy, pure presence. It's almost like an operating room, right? Because of what happens in an operating room, it has to stay really clean. You can't go out, pick up dog poop, and then march into an operating room because it would be detrimental to the hell. You can't pick your nose as you're operating on somebody's heart because you can kill them. Well, around God, there's this holy space. And there are three main categories of things that could not come into God's holy space. People that were diseased, people that had anything to do with dead bodies. You touched a dead body, whatever. And then thirdly, nocturnal sexual emissions. And if you look at all three of those, they're actually all dealing with death. So touching a dead body, obviously. Disease leads to death. Well, what about sexual fluids? Well, here's the thing in the Bible, sexual fluids are sacred. They're different than other fluids because they're the building block for life, right? So if I spit on the ground and my wife spits on the ground, a little baby doesn't pop out because those aren't sacred fluids but sexual fluids are. And when they are wasted, if you would, nocturnally like that, the life that could have been is dead. So what God is saying in the Old Testament is, don't bring death into my presence. Death is an enemy and an invader, and it's not allowed in my presence. Only life 
is allowed in my presence. And death, death spreads. So that's all these unclean laws. And just because you're unclean in the Old Testament does not mean you did something wrong. If you had to bury your grandpa, you were unclean, but you weren't a sinner. You just had to take care of business. And for a period of time, you would be unclean because death spreads. And God doesn't want death in his presence. God doesn't want uncleanness in his presence. Righteousness does not spread. What is Abraham asking for right here? Reverse this. Make righteousness spread. Make cleanness spread. Isn't that amazing? Because what happens in the New Testament? In the New Testament, book of Matthew, we're studying it. Jesus preaches the Sermon on the Mount, the constitution of the kingdom that he is inaugurating. The very first thing he does after he does that kingdom is chapter eight, he goes and he heals a leper. And this leper says, hey, heal me. And guess what Jesus does? He did not have to do this. Guess what Jesus does? He touches him. In the Old Testament, death would have spread. In the Old Testament, leprosy would have spread. In the Old Testament, uncleanness would have spread. But what happens when Jesus touches the leper? His righteousness, his cleanness, his health spreads. The very thing that Abraham is praying for happens with Jesus. In the Old Testament, death is infectious. In the New Testament, life is infectious because of the work of Jesus Christ. It's brilliant. This is what Abraham is praying. Comes true in Jesus. And every time Abraham prays for something, what does God the Son say? Yes. 50, yes. 45, yes. 40, yes, 30, yes, 20, yes, 10, yes. What if Abraham had said, one, one righteous? I think Romans 5 answers that, that the righteousness of one, the righteousness of one, Jesus turns unrighteousness back on its head. I think God would have said, yes, yes. Isn't the Bible amazing? hidden in this crazy little story that doesn't quite fit right is the big story of the Bible. 40 authors, 1,500 years, hidden right there in plain sight. It's brilliant. I love the Bible. It never ceases to blow my mind. Be a priest like Abraham. Be hospitable. Man, to people that show up in the heat of the day, wrong moment, what are you doing here? Be hospitable because you have no idea you might be entertaining angels unaware. It might be the very thing that you need to hear and the very thing that they need. Be prayerful. Abraham's prayerful. He's praying for Sodom and Gomorrah, not his good neighbors. He's praying for the meth lab neighbors. That's who he's praying for, right? Pray for the wrong neighbors and never stop being amazed that Jesus's righteousness has been given to an unholy, unclean, unrighteous sinner like Matt Heverly. That's Genesis 18. Jesus. What a brilliant time to live. That what Abraham prophetically desired and wanted has come true because of your death, burial, and resurrection.
that life now is infectious, that holiness now is infectious, that cleanness now is infectious, that you have infected us with those things. May we never lose the wonder of what you do and what you're willing to do for each of us. May we, may we carry that with us as we leave this building tonight. And we ask this in your name, amen. Amen. God bless you guys.